Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi everyone, good afternoon. Welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Amanda Stibel. I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan, and I'm excited to introduce this panel, Winning Outside the Game in the Business of Sports. Our panelists today are John Collins, CEO of NFL On Location Experiences, Jimmy Pitaro, CEO of ESPN, Michelle Wilson, President of WWE, and Scott O'Neill, CEO of HBSC. Wow. Yeah. Popular. Fan club. I think it was for all. Our moderator is our very own Jessica Galman, CEO of Craft Analytics Group. Love this guy. And this panel will last 45 minutes with, with an additional 10 minutes for questions at the end. If you'd like to ask a question, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag bizofsports. And with that, I'll hand it over to Jess. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everyone. We have an awesome panel change agents, leaders of the industry who are all uniquely qualified to share perspective on the future of sports and what's happening now. So I'm just going to get right into it. Um, this past year, there were very big shifts in the, in the sports landscape. Gambling was legalized. We saw some declining attendance and viewership. Open ticket distribution was launched in the NFL. There were obviously data breaches with Cambridge Analytica. New teams were founded in the NHL with Seattle and new leagues with Overwatch uh, and uh, the XFL and AAF. So the question to you guys is, and, and whoever wants to chime in, I'm not going to call on you specifically, what, if any of these, so it doesn't need to be one, one of these, has had the most prof profound impact on the industry and why? And then the kind of follow-up for you guys is, which has had the most profound impact to your business? So start with the industry and then to you specifically. Go, Scott. Well, I, I will start. I, I, this is an incredible panel here, so I'll leave the, uh, the smart industry answers to them. But in, ter in terms of how it affects my world, I, I think the biggest impact and change has been uh, the increasing values of the sports organizations. Um, the 76ers, according to Forbes, have increased in value over 40% a year over the last two years, each of the last two years. And, and I think the impact of that, which has been going ongoing for probably six or seven years, we've gotten a lot. Uh, it's, a, it's a different person that's acquiring these franchises. And I think um, as operators, we're pushed to be, um, act much more like um, a private equity um, acquired business might act. We have to, to think very differently. We, we built an innovation lab. We have a ventures fund. We are looking at a real estate project. We're looking at all types of, of different businesses. And, um, and while we, we certainly maintain or try to maintain a family business type environment and culture, um, we, the discipline is certainly that of a private equity shop. And I think that's, that will, I think, um, is the start of a trend that's going to become much more prevalent. I would just say uh, something a little bit different than that and, and a trend that's affected WWE and will affect the XFL when that launches in 2020 and, and affects the entire industry. And that's been um, the ability to go direct to consumer with, with technology. And I'm certain Jimmy will speak about this too at the launch of ESPN+. And really, as an industry, I think the ability to go direct to consumer has really put great pressure on rights holders about how we think about the ecosystem. And that affects the industry, that affects rights holders, that affects um, media partners that you're doing business with. And really, at the center of it is, as a content creator and in live sports, where should you put your content? And the ability to now say, I can either, you know, in WWE's case, you know, put my live five hours of programming on broad-based television, I can go direct to consumer, um, I can put it on digital and social, and that ecosystem is so different than it was even a couple of years ago, and that decision making within an organization of I'm creating a piece of live content 
where is it you know, most valuable? So what are the economics I can generate? What kind of engagement can I get? And where do I get the greatest reach? And I think that kind of decision making and the ability to decide um, where to do that and how to do it and how expensive is it to do that has completely changed how we think about our business and the content we create. And I think um, technology has always been a, a disruptor in how fans consume live sports content in particular, that that has really been a game changer for the industry. And I think WWE went a little bit ahead of the industry in going direct to consumer. It's had a profound impact on us as a, as a company and as, a, an, as an organization. Yeah, and I look forward to talking more about that as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys have, have kind of led the charge there um, with WWE Network, and you guys were um, one of the first people to invest in the direct-to-consumer space from a sports perspective. Uh, for us, we're, we're essentially running parallel paths here. Uh, we are continuing to invest in a business model that has been very good to us, the traditional MVPD model, um, at the same time investing in direct. And, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's been fascinating to be a part of this from um, the day that we launched, um, well, we relaunched the ESPN app and um, launched direct uh, to consumer ESPN Plus as a part of that. And, you know, we're essentially running complementary services. So, you know, we have a ton of content, obviously, on our ESPN linear networks. Um, and then we've been out there trying to aggregate um, rights for our ESPN Plus service, which, again, is really viewed as a complementary product. And it's been fascinating to watch the rising tide, which is people consuming you know, on air. Um, we're obviously using our on air channels as, as a bark or a promotional engine to drive to ESPN Plus, but also looking at what's happening on ESPN Plus and within our ESPN app. Um, and also on top of that, our digital social channels and all the investment that we've made on Instagram and Snap and Twitter and Facebook, and, and, and watching how when we introduce content or our, our live events, our studio programming, our original content on these digital platforms, um, we're seeing especially the younger generation is, is then spending more time with our linear network. So that rising tide concept is important to us. I think it's, I would echo what Scott said. I think the, um, the quality of ownership that's coming in now um, is, is changing the game for, I think, leagues and, and clubs that are now you know, looking at their business model differently. So instead of just, you know, certainly from a league organization where I was for 25 years, you know, you have your traditional revenue streams where you're almost licensing out that business and you do everything you can to kind of maximize those revenue streams, but now there's an opportunity to create your own direct-to-consumer model and you want to maximize that as well, creates a lot of tension. But I think the, uh, the thing that I've seen is, uh, you know, and maybe it's because I spent the last three years now in a private equity-backed environment, and I look at a lot of, you know, Scott's group is, uh, you know, Michael was here, Josh is, is coming up later, David Blitzer. I mean, he's, he's got a powerhouse of really tremendous entrepreneurs inside of one ownership group. And so the pressure that they, that, that creates, not, not just in terms of delivering on, on the, the investment that's been made, but being able to draw on all their experience in terms of best practices and all the best ideas and, and the capital that's, that's being used to drive those ideas, they're seeing everything that's happening in the industry. And now they're demanding that in their own sports organizations. And that's different. Right? To me, that's very different. Well, and, and you, know, you had prior experience um, working for the Browns and you for the Dolan family. And you also had uh, experience at a family-run, well, you now have experience at family, a family-run business. I was business. at the NBA, so I had the league experience as well. But I, but I think, well, I mean, the question to you guys is you've seen this change of ownership, and, and Jimmy, we'll, we'll pull you in on this one in, in a little bit, but, you know, what, what are the different, how are you managing both when you have an individual owner versus when you have all of these kind of competing priorities and interests <laughs> that maybe don't align with what, with, with each other? Um, you know, how do you, how do you press forward and maybe in this case use, use some data to help drive decision making? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I know for um, WWE we're obviously a public company, but we have made strategic investments in um, things like Cloud9, eSport, I'm sure will come up on this panel, I'm sure it's come up uh, many times. And, you know, for us it's about resource allocation and um, again, I think most, most everyone in this room knows that 
Uh, Vince McMahon and Alpha Entertainment is also launching the XFL in 2020. So for us, it's really, um, there's limited resources and deciding where to allocate those are, are really the biggest decision that you can make in the, in the seat that I sit in and the seat that Vince McMahon is our chairman and CEO sit. And we do look at data a lot. And you know, one of the other things I was thinking about what's changed our world recently, when you look at something like Fortnite, and Fortnite is something a couple of years ago no one really knew about, and yet it's, and you talk about young, uh, younger generation and what they're spending their time on, and, we, and I think Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, said it best when he said, I don't worry about HBO, I worry about Fortnite. And so we look at things like eSports, what are the younger generations doing? And we spend a lot of time looking at data in terms of are there ancillary businesses that become complementary to what WWE is already good at, the live event business, the television business, the production business. Um, what things do we know that we can then leverage? And then that, those things would rise up on the prioritization list as we're looking at things that we would invest in. But at the end of the day, it's making uh, choices about um, where you want to put your resources. But we definitely live in data every day in terms of making those choices. So, I, and I think that makes a ton of sense. But, you know, Scott, you have how many different owners that you're kind of engaging with on a regular basis and needing to manage the, I mean, I'm assuming they agree on some things, but some competing uh, elements. How, how are you kind of sure. managing that? Well, we call them partners. <laughs> uh, we don't like the O word in our, in our, uh, in our shop, but, but um, and we have two managing general partners, and that's Josh Harris, who's here with his daughter, Hannah, who's at Harvard, a sophomore, and, uh, and David Blitzer. Um, and, and, um, and then we have several other partners, um, one of which was Michael, of whom was Michael Rubin, who you saw in the last panel, who's fantastic. So there are um, 12 or so, but, uh, but Josh and David um, run the organization kind of day to day, if you will, or empower me to do so. And, um, and, and kind of for, from our sake and for all of you who are, are young and kind of embarking on early stage of your career, um, you better figure out really quickly if you have value alignment with your boss or bosses in my case. And so that's kind of where we spent a lot of time early on as we were uh, dancing and dating is like, do, do we believe in the right things? Do we have the same core um, beliefs? Do we believe in um, data-driven decision-making? Do we believe that sports entertainment is a vehicle to make the world better? Um, do we want to win at the highest level? Are we willing to invest to create the greatest culture and greatest place to work in the world? And, and once we had um, alignment as to where we want to go, the rest is really just more tactical. Um, and, and they have day jobs. Josh and David, uh, they work 80, 90 hours a week in their day jobs. And so, you know, the, it's incumbent upon me. We have systems set up to, to have regular checkoffs and meetings on investments and um, debt and, you know, setting up new businesses and what we're looking to grow um, and, and to have uh, resources at your fingertips um, with some of the, the best and smartest deal makers in the world who are well-heeled, want to grow, and, and are wonderful people to boot. I mean, that's, that's, that's the holy grail in what, what we do for a living, is do you want to be around people that you li love, like, and respect? And, and I certainly have that. Um, and I'm very fortunate and feel blessed to do that. I will give a shout out to Kager. Jess is a good partner of ours, and she doesn't talk about her business much, but, but in terms of the data-driven decision-making, um, if you are in a business um, and, and you need some help, like we, we call Jess, and I've, I've known Jess for 10 years or so, we brought Kager in and, and they have uh, dramatically improved our business, the way we understand data, uh, the way we can make the smarter decisions faster. We actually test, imagine, imagine we all do, but in one, one of our, our tests when we first started working together, our reps that were using their, their individualized dashboards were 30% more effective than not. In a business where like sales will keep us uh, swimming and paying the bills, um, you know, incredible resource as an FYI little mini commercial. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Um, well, That's I mean, why I got the first seat. Yeah, next to me. I'll give you some a little Sorry, side. Um, but I think, but it's a good, it's a good uh, point though because you know in this case we obviously partnered, but there are a lot of new technologies that are coming to bear. Um, obviously, OTT is is a huge one. Um, and it was a significant investment uh, for Disney to create what is now ESPN Plus. Can, can, Jimmy, can you give us some perspective on what's been the biggest surprise? I know there's a lot of positive out there. Talk to those, but also uh, what are some of the negatives that you guys maybe in the early, in the early days have now um, you know, pivoted? As it pertains to, to ESPN, ESPN Plus? Plus yeah. um, look, the, the biggest surprise is um, you know, how, uh, how focused 
um, the younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, how focused they are on these third-party social platforms. Uh, and, and so, you know, you hope that you build it and they will come. And, you know, we're, as you said we, we, earlier, we hit two million subs and we take a lot of pride in that. Um, we're still just in the first inning here. We're just starting to get going. Um, but, you know, you have, you have this younger generation that, yes, they're spending a ton of time on Fortnite. Um, they're spending a ton of time on Netflix. Um, they have so many options right now, and they're also spending a ton of time on Instagram and Snap, et cetera. I'm sorry, Snap. And, and so, you know, what we, what we are seeing is that, you know, you don't just build an app, you know, and create content, acquire rights, um, be very high quality, but there, um, there are certain expectations and they're, um, they're very much set on existing platforms, social platforms. Uh, and so what we've done recently is, uh, I guess what I'd say, a, a general pivot, which is um, start to invest more and more resources um, in um, presenting the ESPN brand and our content where they are, right? And so really being open and not requiring them to come to us, but bring our experiences to them. And, you know, I was speaking at a sales conference uh, recently, and um, I was t we were talking about this exact um, topic, and one of our lead salespeople uh, sent me a note afterwards and said, you know, I just want you to know I have um, three teenagers, and all three of them were introduced to SportsCenter on Snap. And so now all three of them are actually watching SportsCenter on linear television. And so that, for, for me, that was an incredible thing to hear uh, because it tells me that what we're doing, you know, investing, you know, additional resources on these social platforms is, is working. And um, it's, it's incredibly necessary. You can't just expect that you're going to build a great app no matter how good the product is, no matter how personalized it is. You can't just expect that they're, that they're going to move and, ta and take, spend less time on Instagram and more time on your app. So... Yeah, you, you, you mentioned earlier the tides rising, so that, that makes a ton of sense that they would learn about it on Snap and then transition over uh, to Linear. And I think the other thing that I've seen um, on ESPN Plus and what you guys have been doing, I love the content of Kobe, you know, do, like talking about a certain player. Peyton obviously did yeah. a great piece over, during the Super Bowl. Um, that is pretty unique and different. And I think I'm, I'm just, you know, Michelle, you've done a, a ton of stuff like this um, with, with, with all of your great efforts with YouTube, you guys have 1.8 million viewers. Or well, we have we have two we, at WrestleMania this year, which is our Super Bowl. We had over two million subscribers to our WWE Network, which is our OTT service. On YouTube, we're actually the largest sports channel. We have over 20 billion views on YouTube. So again, our that's our, pretty good. That's really good. <laughs> Thank you to get a compliment from Scott. That's really good. Um, but so, you know, so again, it go, it goes back to you know, what, what Jimmy was talking about is you have to get that younger generation where they are. And that was really part of WWE's strategy of, you know, we have to be where our fans are. So we have to be on television because there's still tremendous reach and economics and traditional television through MVPDs. But you have to, um, you know, I've similar story. I've uh, met a gentleman and their uh, eight-year-old was telling me how much they love Andre the Giant. And I was like, how would they know about Andre the Giant? I saw him on YouTube. And it made me realize that what we do, because we really lean into digital and social to introduce our fans to the WWE content, it really is a game changer for us. Yeah. And you know, it goes back to the, the surprise of all of it, of, of trying to figure out what to put where, and, and that I always call it the delicate balance, balancing act, is really data was the biggest surprise for us. Quite frankly, when we launched, it's now our fifth year, believe it or not, which is hard to believe, was five years that we've had our direct-to-consumer service. I think the thing we were most shocked by is the amount of data you get. We had always done our business through third-party partners, and we didn't always get a lot of data. We didn't know what they were watching, how they were watching, you know, what they like, when they leave, what are segments looking at. Um, but more than the data was what we realized is we didn't have the infrastructure to handle it <laughs> at WWE. We liter literally had, I think, one data scientist, and it was going from having data 
to creating insights, to creating action against that. We just weren't prepared for that. So I think that was our biggest ahas. You know, you have to work really hard to earn that monthly fee from those subscribers. And to do that, you better know what they like and get smart about what you recommend and what kind of content you create from them. So we just didn't even have that infrastructure at WWE. Now I think we have like 60 data scientists at our organization. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that you've been at it for five years. and. I think maybe this is something all of us can, could learn a couple things as content, Scott, being one of the biggest things and most important things happening in sports. How did you market to your customers to get them onto those digital platforms? You know, we did, um, it was a, another amazing learning process that it sounds like Jimmy is going through as well. The, the natural reaction that we had was, well, we have to advertise on television and we should advertise in Raw and SmackDown, which we did. Um, but we also did a lot of digital and social advertising. And then we uh, smartly did an attribution test, which if those of you not familiar with that, is there are organizations that can actually track your spending and then follow it all the way through the last click of when someone actually purchases ESPN Plus or they make a transaction on WWE Network. We actually measured what media dollars, what spending was really working for us. And what we found, which is, I guess, not surprising, but it completely shifted our focus, was that most of our recommendations were coming through digital and social platforms, stuff that we weren't even necessarily paid media. And so we really realized that we were actually wasting paid media against platforms that really weren't driving acquisition. But when you did through our own platforms, through digital and social, kind of native, I'm one click away from buying the subscription, that was a much better place to commit our own internal assets and then paid media as well. So really, analytics completely changed even how we were spending from the start to how we spend now. And we've gotten incredibly more efficient at it. And I, I will, the content thing is, I mean, it, it's, that's very insightful um, and very helpful. And I think, John, I wanted to, you know, one of the things that you've built at On Location that's pretty incredible, it was just like five years ago, three or four people within the NFL, and, and now it's grown into a $350 million business. But you're- 500 million. 500 million. 600. Seven. Eight, $1 million. <laughs> Um, but you're also creating this new kind of experiential economy and you're leveraging content and partnerships to do that. Can you walk us through a little bit how you've approached that and how you've thought about that, even with all of the acquisitions that you've made? Well, I think the, um, so we approach it like we're partners with whoever the rights holder is, whether it's the NFL or WWE or, or we have a big relationship with ESPN. Um, we want to be a service to those guys. I mean, I, I knew from my time that you just never have enough resources, as Michelle was saying. You got to make those decisions. And so here was a private equity-backed group that had a lot of the same experience that people who were running the IP had, but they had access to uh, more uh, resources, and they would be able to help you extend your plan and do more. So for us, you know, the, the case study of the NFL was, was one where um, it was a bit of the wild, wild west. There were a lot of people who were kind of coming in and leveraging the Super Bowl. And, and what we began to do is really define where that lost value was and bring it back into the nest. But I think the biggest, uh, you know, just to echo what everybody, why everybody's here and what everybody's saying is, I think the biggest uh, learning, and, and I always felt this when, when I was running marketing for the NFL, you talk about 100, and we didn't have all the resources, you know, and so. The, the way you reached people was through the, you know, the broadcast networks on Sunday, ESPN on, on, on Sunday night at that point. And you would reach 120, 130 million people in the country just over the course of that weekend, but you didn't really know anything about them, right? And so the balance was always, could you actually have the scale of something like the NFL, but then have a one-to-one -one relationship with every single one of those 120 million fans? Because if you had that, what else could you really do? And I think that, you know, now that opportunity exists, and that's what we're trying to fulfill. So what we're trying to do is take the next step for fans of all these sports or music or activities, <clears throat> particular artists, and understand what they would be, what they really want from that relationship, from that passion, and then how can we deliver it? So, you know, we just came off of a. Uh, uh, a weekend festival with Dave Matthews Band, where basically, you know, you go down, go down to Playa de Carmen, you spend uh, three days with the band. They're, in, they're at the resort every night. You know, they're hanging out with their fans. 
Every night you go to the beach and there's a private performance. But it's a completely closed loop system, right? So these are the best Dave Matthews fans in, their, in, the, in the world who now have identified this as the opportunity. This is the one event. They may go to the concert when Dave Matthews comes to, his, comes to Philadelphia. But this is the one event now that they say we're never going to miss because this is our real opportunity to get really close to those fans. And I think that's what we're focused on. And when you're running a big brand, you just, it's, hard to, it's hard to get to that level. You just you can't, right? The NFL's got to worry about staging the game, right? And then taking care of the 10,000 most important people that they have on Sunday. Well, we worry about the other 50,000 that are at the game. I'd yeah, say, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I... I think we're all experienced the world changing before our eyes, and it's something we've been hearing about, reading about, and getting, getting little touches for the last 20 years, and it's, it is here. And a lot of what we're finding is, in, it, through our Ventures Fund and our Innovation Lab, some of the investments we're making, um, you know, we have an investment in a company called U.GG, You Get Good, and it's, uh, it works with League of Legends, players playing League of Legends, um, and the commissioner we saw, Chris Greeley, here of his league, but effectively, um, this small company helps people prepare for games, like gets them prepared, and eventually will help them with post-game analytics. It's like they do over a billion page views. It's seven months old, this company. You know, and, and we have um, another company called, uh, in another company called Home Court, and in nine months, this incredible company helps people. If you play basketball, you should download this app called Home Court. And it, it, through your iPhone, helps track all your shots and has all these dribbling exercises for your kids. My kids use it. They're not very good, but they use the exercise. Um, and, and you've got 10 million shots up in 150 countries in nine months. And it's this incredible tool, okay, that brings like the most sophisticated analytics where we used to have cameras and all the sophisticated technology in our, in our training centers. It puts it in your backyard or in your YMCA or in your church gym. And it's like, and the scale is like this these days. And so we, as, as business leaders, I think we just have to be a little more nimble. We have to be a little quicker. And these guys are running businesses. We, you know, we, we don't have as big a business as some of these guys do. But I, I will tell you, we focus on all the time is can we be nimble enough to move and dance and bob and weave to make sure that we're just slightly ahead of this curve that's yeah. coming? So, so in, in that vein, uh, we, we have been trying um, some new things recently in the spirit of innovation. Uh, we took uh, the Duke. Um, University of Virginia game. Um, at the time, it was number one versus number four. Uh, we did an alternative broadcast on um, ESPN+. Plus. We did Duke versus UNC last week also on ESPN+, Plus, where we had isolated cameras um, following the freshmen, following the stars. Um, tonight, actually, we have um, Lakers versus uh, Milwaukee. Um, on ESPN1, we're doing an ESPN3 alternative broadcast in partnership with NBA um, advanced stats and a company called Second Spectrum, um, we're actually going to have um, several different modes. Uh, one mode uh, is um, really the coach mode where you'll see diagrams real time on the court. You'll see a lot of X's and O's. Another mode is what we call the player mode, which is you'll see real time player shooting probabilities um, show up on the screen. And those would change again real time. Uh, and then the third mode is mascot mode, where you'll see, uh, for example, enhanced graphics fire when uh, someone makes a really good shot. You'll see a 3D brick when someone has a poor shot. Um, so yes, we, we, are, we are trying, we're trying to be nimble, we're trying new things. Um, and, 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 and so far, we're, we're seeing it, going back to the earlier point, we're seeing all this stuff resonate with the younger generation. We're doing, you know, WWE, same thing. We, um, we actually have established um, what we're calling Content Innovation Lab in our performance center in Orlando. So we have a, a tra world-class training facility in Orlando where we're training the up-and-coming WWE superstars, male and female. And what we realized, which is even more interesting, is um, you know, an iPhone, uh, you know, a, a phone is really a, the most efficient way to capture content. And so what we're realizing is merging kind of our natural resource, who are our talent, our performers, and teaching them how to be content creators, which is yeah. a completely different idea. Um, so again, efficiency, speed, um, making it feel more authentic to that audience. So we're literally training them, you know, how to capture themselves. I know, Scott, you're really good at selfies. I just learned that backstage. We're teaching them how to do video that is, you know, in character or lets the, the fan know a little bit more about them personally. But, 
when you marry kind of the brand of our talent with technology that's cost efficient, you can do anything. And then, by the way, you have a, your own direct-to-consumer platform. You can deliver that. And so it is a completely different business model where you have to, you have, one, you have to be ready to turn on a dime. Um, and then we're looking at more efficient ways to create live events. We know that fans want live. So how do you do that? It, it's expensive. Yeah. You're in that business. Yeah. It's extremely capital intensive. So are there ways to leverage technology where you can bring more live content, but it doesn't, it's not breaking your budget. So you know, things from our, brand, our talent being their own content creators to is there a more efficient way to deliver live programming and more of it? And, and having a direct-to-consumer platform allows you to test a lot of things, which is you know, to your point, Scott, you've got to test and learn, test and learn, test and learn. You've got to be quick and you have to iterate quickly. Um, we've been really kind of pushing ourselves as an organization to do that because, you know, again, our theory is if, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So you've got to be one step ahead. I, I totally agree. And, and when, if you go back, if this panel were in the, in the mid-90s is when I went to the Philadelphia Eagles as director of sales and there were three people in sales and marketing. And I look at our staff and we've got, you know, we have more people here at this conference than we had in our entire business team of an NFL team that just paid a record price for an organization. We've got 10 people doing basketball analytics alone. Six of them are PhDs, they're from four different countries. Yeah. Like it's, it's amazing and staggering. You know, we're building the same on the hockey side. And you look at the business team, you talked about all your analysts. We literally OTT. hired a rocket scientist, by the way. <laughs> we did, they're awesome. Yes. Yes, especially if you want to launch a rocket. Yeah, it's handy. Um, but I, I'm just kind of blown away by, uh, it sure is. I'm, I'm just blown away by, by where the business is, how we're staffing, how we're seeing the world differently and where it's going. This is, it's just about to get fun. Well, I mean, he, but here's the thing that you guys are all talking about. You, you guys have led change. You have brought innovative concepts into your business, each of you, in very unique and distinct ways. It's not always easy to get that buy-in. I mean, it isn't. So how have you actually, like what has your approach been that's actually allowed you to get the buy-in and support where others maybe who were your peers at one time haven't? I think it's all about the revenue. <laughs> you gotta, you know, to have a great idea but then ask for funding usually, you know, doesn't work. I mean, I think you have to be able to show that you have a great idea, this is the impact it's gonna have, and you can figure out a way to have it make What was money. yours? Well, I've had a few, but I, I, I think, I think the, uh, you know, the one that Scott and I talk about a lot is, is the Winter Classic for, for, for the NHL, which, you know, the idea of outdoor hockey is not, you know, it's not unique. And in fact, that game had been played in, in Edmonton and run by the club many, many years ago. And so when I got to the NHL, Every time I would go into somebody's office, there was a picture of that game in a football stadium up in Edmonton, and it, you know the imagery was incredible. And I kept saying, "By the way, what is that?" And um, everybody raved about the game. Everybody raved about the imagery that came out of it. But then you said, "Well, why didn't you ever do it again?" And it was like, "Well, it lost four million dollars, right?" And, and that was it. So. You know, at the NHL, it was really a, a matter of trying to build scale for a sport that was perceived as being more niche, certainly in, in the U.S., but it was also creating that, that business model that would create, that would be able to sustain that event, right? So you didn't have to make a lot of money, but you had to make money, right? You couldn't just bet on it. There's and I always think that's, that the phase before where you're not. Right. You know, I, I mean, I think that's the toughest part is when you're doing something new. When we forged ahead before anyone else and launched an OTT service, we're a publicly traded company. Our stock right. took a dive. We, we lost money. Yep. Um, it was a significant investment. But I think that the game changer is um, leadership at the top and alignment at the top that we were looking to the future and we were, you know, and it might have been a small three we, but we believe that that's where the future was going, that we were, we wanted to invest in that. We knew we were going to lose money as a company. We knew Wall Street was not going to be happy. But having that belief and commitment that that's what the future is and having a leader like a Vince McMahon that once there's a vision and a commitment to that and you know you have the air cover, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we always called it the swamp of despair. There's a great chart about innovation that, you know, you start out, it sounds like a great idea, everybody's in, you start to do it and you're like, wow, this is a lot harder than we thought it was gonna be. This mm, is gonna cost it. a lot more money. This is really painful, swamp of despair. 
then it starts to work. And you know, making it through that is the most important part. Ultimately, we've been fortunate. Our, our network is now our second most profitable business. Our stock is where it is, and, it, and it's been a huge success for us. But you have to be willing to live through the dark hours of this long, dark hallway. Is, is this going to work? And leadership, and there, you know, we had an entire organization behind us saying, we have to believe in what we're doing. We have to believe that that's the future. Um, without that commitment, I think that's when organizations start to you know, fall, fall apart behind innovation. And so it, it takes the ability to take risk and be commit calculated risk, but the perseverance is incredibly important and, and having a belief in what you're doing. Without that, I think it's, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, so for us by far, again, the most innovative thing we're doing at, at the Walt Disney Company is direct to consumer. Disney, ESPN, but I, I can take zero credit for that. I, <laughs> I, started, I started at ESPN in March and the decision had already been made by Bob Iger um, that DTC were priorities for both Disney and ESPN. At the same time, Yes, courageous moves because you're disrupting yourselves. Exactly. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're talking about investing in product, you're talking about investing in tech and, and content acquisition and original content development. Um, those are short-term significant investments. Um, but at the same time, you know, my boss was, was um, you know, he, he's, he's, uh, he's incredibly proactive. He's thoughtful, but he's very proactive. And he, um, he's willing to, um, like I said, to disrupt uh, himself or, or to, to make a call that disrupts some existing businesses with um, the, um, uh, the understanding that this is the right investment or these are the right investments for us to be making long term. So we are not in swamp of despair. I would not say that we are in the swamp. But it's not fun, by the way. I know. I feel like that would be my autobiography right now. The swamp of despair. Yeah, I'm like drowning in it. Yeah. I think it's from the Princess Bride. Yeah. But yeah, you make it through. I mean, yeah, you guys obviously are a much larger organization, so you have a, a little bit more financial ability to do that. We're smaller, so it was it was a much greater risk. Um, but again, you have that leadership at the top makes a big difference about yeah. committing to uh, innovation and change and disrupting a legacy business model. I think um, John's, what he did with the Winter Classic is just is just a force of will and brilliant. And I think what you did with the World Cup of Hockey, again, is just a force of will and brilliant. And, and I, I, I think that sometimes when you're leading organizations, like there is a force of will that gets you through the swamp. Like there's no other way. And you, you, um, and you have to, you know, I know that working for, uh, for Josh and David, I know that we have to do the work first off. Like, have you done your homework? Have you done the work? Have you done the research? Have you dug in? Do you understand the financial model? Do you understand the upside and downside? Do you understand who the different constituents are? Do you understand like what the contingency plan, do the work, like actually get down and do the work. Um, and then you have, to, you have to drive, you have to figure out what the, what the revenue model is for sure. Um, but then it's a force of will, like it is. And, and sometimes, you know, when you talk about D2C, I'm like gritting my teeth over here. Uh, Jake Reynolds is over there somewhere. And, um, and when I've been talking about how teams are, teams are still in the stone ages in terms of, you know, we're, we're just getting up to speed in terms of data-driven data decision-making, and we're, we're much better. But in terms of actually understanding our customers, we ceded that business to everybody else. We need to understand who our customers, even at a team level. Now, I know we, you guys are, you know, I, I get the scale. But at the team level, think about how different it would be. I have, you know, we have you know, two teams. We have an esports team. We know we have plenty of fans, if you will, around the world. You know, so much so that we have Mandarin-speaking employees. If you told me that, I'd have that 10 years ago. I'd, I'd have fallen off my chair. Yeah. Um, and, and you think about, like, what other businesses can we create that leverage our affiliation, association, and connection with the entire city of Philadelphia. That's a business. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out what it is. Right. Um, but the first thing we have to know is who, what, when, where, why. And we don't. And so, so that, is our, that is what we're spending a lot of, of time on to try to figure out, like, what our little microcosm of what you guys have built, what does that little, little bit look like? What does our D2C model look like at a, at a kind of team level? Yep. And what is, the, what is the output that comes from that? And that, that's the fun part. This, I don't, I'm not in a strategic business. This is like a, it's a meat and potatoes, it's blocking and tackling. And so when you get the chance to, to you know, build out a, a, a different content model or you, or you build out a new D2C model, that's, that's the, to me, that's the fun part of this business. Well, so Jimmy, I, I mean, you know, you mentioned the D2C um, was a decision that predated you, but let's take Overwatch as a recent example. Um, how are you strategically approaching engaging new leads and also what is what are the what's the analytic rigor as Anna Scott just mentioned that's helping you decide which not only which sports in this case and overwatch over yeah. other ones 
but also which sports. I mean, there's new sports that are right. are popping up all the time. In some in some cases, ESPN can be a kingmaker. Yeah. So I mean, help help walk us through, as you know, you're running the ship now, how you're making those decisions and thinking about it, and why Overwatch. Look, we try to make as many decisions as we can based on data. Now, yes, we have really smart people working for us, and it can't just be about machines. You know, a lot of it has to be about relying on your smart people, and so we try to strike that balance, and I think we're, we're pretty good at it. But to bring this in back to your specific question, um, you know, I think the UFC is a good example. You know, one of our top priorities at ESPN is audience expansion, and that includes attracting a younger audience. And so the data told me um, that the UFC has a very passionate, diverse, young audience. Uh, and so, um, really, to, to simplify this, we partnered with the UFC to help us expand our audience, not, not just to broaden and, and extend the core, but to broaden and extend to, to this young, these younger demos. Um, and so fast forward to today, and we're incredibly pleased with the partnership. You know, they've been a big contributor to our two million um, subs on, on ESPN Plus, and the ratings on, on air, on linear, have been very, very strong. But the, the, the real driver behind that decision to go ahead and partner with the UFC was data. And so, you know, when we sit down, um, you know, we, we try to, like I said, strike that balance. You know, another, another good example is, of course, eSports. And yes, we partnered with Activision and Overwatch League. You know, we're, we have a very good partnership with League of Legends on ESPN Plus. And, you know, obviously gaming and eSports is not a fad. We are very much behind it. Um, and we will continue to invest in it. We've actually been in the eSports space for quite some time in terms of what's on linear. It's now getting a lot more attention, so I think people are starting to notice. But we will continue to invest in that space, and our data tells us that we should be. Well, and you put Nitro on the cover of the magazine, and that was the first time that that Ninja. Ever... Ninja, sorry. Yes. Ninja, Nitro. Yeah. statement. That was the first time we had, forget about a gamer, that was the first time we had gaming or esports on yep. the cover of ESPN magazine. So, so as we're, I mean, I think <clears throat> you, the, the UFC effort was to expand the audience um, and extend and reach a new audience. So, Michelle, you've had a lot of luck bringing women um, into the fold with the WWE. Um, would be very interested to kind of understand, you know, how you took that tact, but then separately with this future endeavor into um, the XFL, how you're thinking about applying that to reaching, to bringing more women to football. Yeah, and uh, you know, at WWE, one of our goals, as Jimmy said, was to bring new a new audience to WWE, and and what we found is that there were. Um, a lot of women who were co-viewing um, with their significant others um, watching WWE. So we, you know, for me personally, I thought there was a great opportunity. It was still almost 30% of our audience at that time, which was surprising for some. So we, um, we did some things like create reality programming, which, which does well with the female demo with um, Total Divas and Total Bellas on the E! Network. Um, so we started getting some traction of, of bringing women into our audience, but what's really interesting and what we, what probably the most profound data-driven event um, in terms of changing the history of women in WWE really happened on social media for us. And it's this incredible story of, uh, about two, in 2015 when um, during WWE, our fans are on Twitter constantly. We trend 52 weeks a year because they want to be part of the storyline. They're either annoyed with what happened or they're really happy with what just happened. Um, and we had, women have always been part of WWE, but we had a, a women's match, which was with um, the Bella Twins and another, I, I don't remember if it was who the other female opponent was, but literally the way the writers wrote the show is the match lasted for 30 seconds. And and the internet, Twitter kind of exploded with out of frustration that, you know, that, that's not right. These women are great athletes and you guys gave them a 30 second match and a hashtag called Give Divas a Chance trended for three days worldwide. <laughs> and literally I was on the phone that night with Vince McMahon saying like, have you seen the, we had social media people that track everything and the sentiment and how large the conversation is. And to trend three days worldwide, we were like, we need to listen to this. And so, you know, I, I called Vince and I said, I don't know if you've seen what's happening. And, and he was, you know, fascinated by it because we've always listened to our fans. 
And literally, Vince um, said, well, I want to tweet something out. And he said, keep watching. Give divas a chance. And ultimately, it started our journey of creating women to really be um, a focal point of what we do in our programming. They're an important part of the TV ratings, um, recruiting athletes who are tremendous performers. And then a year or so later, you know, we called them this word divas, which, of course, for me, I'm like, I don't know if that's a positive or negative. I've probably been called that. I don't know. I've been called that as well. Scott's been called that. Um, I'm not sure it's a positive terminology. Some tell me that it used to be a compliment in, back in the day. Um, but literally, you know, one of my questions was, like, why do we call them that? Why don't we call them superstars just like we do the men? And ultimately, around WrestleMania, we announced that we're not going to call them divas anymore. They're going to be WWE superstars. Their title belt is going to look like the men's title belt. And you know, you fast forward, we now have someone from the UFC, Ronda Rousey, who sees what we do and sees and sees the importance of women and what they're contributing to our product. And you know, all in when you add up all of WWE viewership, it's about 40% are coming from women. So it, it was really amazing to see how data and social conversation really opened our eyes to what our fans wanted around a really important topic. And you know, as a woman, I was I really loved the fact that we were able to um, go on this journey and really evolve how the women are represented in our property and in our sport. So it's it's been a, a really great thing for us as it as it relates to the XFL, which was, you know, I think part of uh, starting a league from scratch is that ability to not be encumbered by, you know, as big leagues and big companies, you're encumbered by partnerships and contracts and what you can and can't do. Um, how you should approach the sport. And so for the XFL, we're really all about access and how do we if we started a league where the fan is at the middle. You know, what would a male and a female fan want from a sports league? And that's really where um, the kind of genesis of the XFL is access and being innovative. So I think we want to bring women along for the ride as well. And I think a lot of that is about who are these athletes? You know, both men and women want to know what, what's the story behind the athlete? And that'll be a key part of what we do in the XFL. I uh, just uh, somewhat of a non sequitur, but, but, uh, but a build on just a DNI initiative. And and having um, Michelle run, the, run one of the top sports organizations in the world is like, it's very different from what it might have been 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I'm looking at, I'm just seeing three women I work with here. Laura Price is our COO, and Jill Snodgrass is one of our VPs, and Laura Tuscany Weems, who's our director. And I will tell you, awesome. like, it's awesome. Like, yeah. but, I can't but see them, but I had awesome. a friend of mine um, asked me the other day, because I was talking about you know, how excited I was. We have like all the, you know, some pretty exciting DNI initiatives. And, um, and he, he, I have three daughters, and he said, you know, well, this must be because you have three daughters. And I said, no, it's because they're smarter. <laughs> and and I, I will say that the, the, this, this industry is a changing, as they say. And, and um, as we look out in this room, it's like the more diverse this room becomes, the more diverse our businesses become, the more diverse our businesses become, the smarter we get, the more intuitive we, we get, um, and the more we'll be able to identify and reach new audiences. And so to, to, to the extent, I'll give you a plug, as, as uh, if you fast forward your career, 10 years from now or 15 years from now or 20 years from now, um, when and if you're in a position of power and influence, I just I want you to, to understand the, the impact that your leadership can have on changing kind of the, the dynamic force of this business. Amen. Amen. So thank you, Scott. Um, I agree. Uh, so, um, so another question that, that came up that we were talking about how we're redefining content and exploring new ways. And so, uh, John, a, a specific question to you. What have you learned, if anything, from engaging fans through on location that you think might be transferable to the sports media business? Well, I, 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 think, the, uh, I think it's just part of the whole fandom. I think it's what you know, Michelle was talking about. I mean, you, know, you, you let an incredible, and it got it paid off, right, with the big new media deals, right? So I, I was kind of curious how much that really contributed to the a lot. You know, the business success that yeah. you guys have had recently. But for me, uh, even from, you know, when I was starting in the business at NFL Films, I mean, it was always about access. And um, the NFL is not exactly the sport that offers the most access. Uh, having just been for the first time ever at Daytona 500, where they have people laying on the track and signing their name before the race and walking through the pits, I mean, it's really incredible. So. I think um, you know, the reason for On Location to Be is to help service these guys. 
uh, let them do more and focus on what they really got to focus on. But why we're there for the fan is ultimately to provide access that otherwise they would never be able to get. Right? So we're not, uh, we don't view ourselves as uh, a lot of people say, who are you like, who are your biggest competitor? You know, we're not StubHub, we're not Ticketmaster. Yeah. We don't view ourselves, we're not, you know, I hope we're not a ticket broker. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build out these experiences by giving people access that they've, they've never had before. And that, for me, was a thread that I learned from Steve Sable, you know, 20 years ago, where, you know, you watch the games on Sundays, saw the highlights on, you know, on ESPN, you heard it all talked about on Monday, and then on Thursday you would go to the inside the NFL and watch those highlights again because they had a different perspective, which had wirings of coaches and players and, and uh, cinematography that you wouldn't have been able to see, even though you already know what happened in the game. So... I don't think that's ever changed. I think it's just at the core of why people are passionate about sports and entertainment. It's about that access. Yeah, and just to, just to pile on there, from the media perspective, we're all about access and authenticity, especially just to bring this home when you, again, thinking about the younger generation and what is resonating with them on, on YouTube. Now, I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, and, and they, they, when they're consuming video on, on that platform, they, they feel like the people... Um, the influencers are speaking directly to them. They feel like they have access to, um, to things that no one else has access to, even though it's not really true. Um, but they also feel like the people that are speaking to them are authentic. Mm-hmm. And you know, they, they view quality in a completely different way that maybe you and I grew quality, mm-hmm. viewed quality growing up. You know, it's, it's not about the fancy sets or shot in HD. You know, these, these, these influencers are, are shooting, of course, on their iPhones, and it's just scrappier. Um, but, but, you know, when, when we think about the content that we're creating going forward for ESPN+, Plus, um, for, for Linear, we're constantly thinking about access and, and authenticity. And, you know, miking players, you know, we, we had Mookie Betts mic'd up in a preseason Red Sox game last year, and um, it was a two-way mic, and he was speaking live to our people in the booth, and there was a ball hitting the gap, and he said, as he's running after the ball, he said, I ain't getting that one, fellas. <laughs> um, and th- th- that's gold, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. so we need to be, as an industry, we need to be doing more of that. You know, we have, um, we're doing a Red Sox all-access day, we're doing two days next week, where we're going to be, you know, doing live interviews on the field with the Red Sox players. We're going to have the Red Sox players on get up and on first take and in, you know, in the, on SportsCenter and hopefully coming into the booth. Um, just, just being a little bit more innovative and a little bit yeah. scrappier, it's incredibly important. We had an all-access day with, uh, with your crew and, and they, were, they were very respectful, amazing. Uh, our coach, players, all yeah. had an incredible experience and it led with the, the big crew at the game and it was fantastic. And, and, and um, we, we in the property, like, I'm not sure we should be ceding that to you. It doesn't mean we shouldn't provide access. You're right. a wonderful partner and by the way, Thank you for everything you do for the NBA. We appreciate you, you and love you. Um, but as, as a property, like, we need to do more. Yeah. Like, we, need to, we have to peek behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's what, where we're spending a lot of time and effort and thinking about, one, how we can uh, protect and build the brands of our players. And so what does that look like in, in Mandarin as opposed to English? Or, you know, we have Joel Embiid from, from Cameroon in Africa. I, I just read a stat that in the next 20 years, half the people born in the world we born in Africa. And so for us, it's like, we're really interested. We, have the, we think the biggest star to come out of Africa in a very, very long time. And so what does that actually mean? You know, there are right. hundreds of languages spoken in Africa. So how do we actually deliver content there? Um, ben Simmons is from Australia. Like, what are we doing in Australia? Australia, it's, it, it's a version <laughs> of English, you know? Mm-hmm. And so how, how does that actually look and feel? And, and, and we've got 300 million people in China playing basketball, playing basketball. And so what does that look like? Um, and, and so from our end, it's like, I see what you guys are doing. I think it's brilliant. Um, I want more. As a consumer, I want more. Yeah, and I it, do go, too. It, it goes back to the uh, notion of the athletes and performers as content creators. Yes. I mean, it's a, a really interesting notion that, um, again, I think WWE gets it because we, we have to create that content 52 weeks a year. But um, it, you have to train, you have to teach them. You know, it, it, they're, they're athletes. And so you can't just give them a phone and, you know, you've got to tell them how to do it. But it, it, exactly, Jimmy, what you spoke about is what we learned is when you do that kind of, um, when you watch them with YouTube influencers, they literally feel like that person's their friend. I know that person because that person is speaking to me 
through their own phones and it's, it's not high-end production. And so we've, we, um, just like we do everything, we kind of tier our production quality, knowing depending on what we're doing. But we've realized that we actually have to train our talent how to do that or train the athletes how to do that. And it's a big part of not only do they have to learn how to perform in the ring to be a good athlete and how to be a good actor or actress, but also, you know, your brand and you as a content creator. And, and it does resonate around the world. I mean, you know, the, the content we're lucky to all do travels um, and, it, and there are no boundaries to it. So for us, it's like if you can help them understand how to be authentic and have their own voice and everybody's going to be a little bit different, yep. it's a game changer. And, and we've seen that with our own talent. Um, you know, John Cena has figured that out really well. He has more followers than anybody in social media because he lets you have a peek into his life. He tells you that he can speak Mandarin and you hear him or that he has learned to play the piano, but he's shooting it and, and he's letting you into his world. So. I know, and I was thinking a small business like ours, it's like, how do you even leverage your employees to, to, to them? Instead, we're like letting everybody go. And we're trying to reel that back and say, okay, 10 times a year for 10 key points in the calendar, how are we leveraging the folks we give courtside seats to? Like, what are they willing to do for us on the 10 points of the year that matter? Like, how about our season ticket holders? Like, how can we leverage them? How about our employees? Like, how about our players? Like, how are we actually putting this together and saying, okay, let's stop traffic? Yeah. And that's what we're spending a lot of time thinking about. That's great. So... I'm going to have a couple questions from the audience, uh, and this first one's great. The, how do you balance the data insights with your own instincts about what is best, especially with all of you having a tremendous amount of knowledge of sports and business? Have you ac ever actually disagreed with what the data is telling you a and, and either been right or wrong? So, so look, you know, for our online experiences, you know, we try to deliver right content to the right user at the right time. Um, and, and a lot of that is focused on algorithms and personalization. And, and, and fortunately, what we see is the more we personalize, um, the, 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 the higher engagement. You know, the more articles that are consumed, the more video is consumed, the more time spent, the more they come back. Like I said before, though, it's important that we strike the balance. It can't just be about the algorithms. You know, with, a lot of it has to be editorial, editorially driven. And, and so what we see is as we're striking that balance, um, people are, are spending more time. But I think if we just, you know, reverted everything to personalized algorithms, it wouldn't work. Anyone else? Yeah, I would say just on our front, um, on social media, I think that the data from social media you have to treat very carefully because they're also uh, what we call a vocal minority. Um, so I think there is a lot of judgment that comes in. I think you have to look at the data and understand um, when somebody's angry or upset or doesn't agree um, that that you don't you should you can't always make the knee-jerk reaction on social media. So we've been incredibly careful on social media sentiment and reports on strict data. Um, you know when we're looking at data from the WWE OTT service and we're seeing what they're consuming and what they're not. I generally I ask for more and more data because numbers don't lie. Um, and when you look at data and you see this is a show they're watching and this is a show they're not watching, you know, that, that really, so I think it's all balancing depending on what it is. If it's mm. hard data on viewership, I'll tend not to disagree with it. I'll just ask for more data. If it's social media sentiment, probably a more judgment comes into the decision making. I was with a, with talking to a friend of mine the other day and his uh, firm is a PE firm in China and he had financed um, Crazy Rich Asians, the movie. And, um, and he, he, he gave me this whole speech about how the world is moving towards all our movies in the future will be um, written through AI, you know, which yeah. I thought was ridiculous and sad. But nonetheless, that's my own thing. Um, and, and I just thought, huh, you know, to, to, you know I'm, I'm a, I go to a lot of movies. A lot of, I've been to a lot of princess movies in my day yeah. in Disney. Thank you. And, um, and so you're welcome. And, um, and I, I always think about like that is like the, I guess the extreme and um, data on our viewers of our um, games, you know that's pretty cut and dry. Um, and I think that um, the, to the extent you can marry that with your experience um, and your your instinct is really helpful. Um, but our instinct that's really helpful is also like laden with bias. And I think um, at least from my perspective and, and the the times that I have fallen down the most repeatedly. Is, is that when, the, when I either have numbers that, that don't tell the real story or that we haven't asked the right question or I haven't gotten down second level, third level, fourth level um, and to really understand the data and then I go with my gut is usually when I fall down. And so I, I'd say for those of you who will be um, delivering data to, to people like me, 
or manipulating data for people like me or interpreting data for people like me. Um, I want you to, to take your bias out of your interpretation and your bias out of your delivery. Um, and I, I found that the, the, the younger and smarter the person, the more their bias comes in in terms of how they deliver the data, which has been, um, you know, been a difficult transition for me. So um, we're kind of coming to the end here, so I wanted to wrap up on a, a forward-looking question. Um, you know, Scott, you guys have done a tremendous amount with investing, uh, the investing fund and venture labs. John, you guys have acquired nine companies over the past three years. You know, Jimmy, Disney bought BAMTech. And Michelle, you guys are creating a league. So nothing too big here. Um, <laughs> beyond these kind of types of efforts, over the next two to three years, where are you guys looking to invest and move your businesses forward? What's mm -hmm. the next opportunity? I mean, I think for us, it's, uh, you know, it's beginning to think about uh, how we understand. You know, we have 4 million buyers uh, calm because we haven't done much more than that in, in our database and we want to get to know them better so I think that's a big part of it and then begin to move them through our ecosystem I think it's probably international because I think these you know the big events are just becoming bigger right and a lot of them are here um, and I think for, for for me it's it's watching media now you know it, it, particularly the big media I mean I, mean, I think Jimmy's in a, you know, he would be one of the guys I would be watching. Like, he's in the right chair at the right time. He's the right guy. I mean, AT&T and Turner and, you know, the new Fox, which, you know, you guys were able to do a huge deal with. But at the end of the day, I feel like there, there does need to be sort of a cultural touch point for sports. I don't think it should just be diverse and, and everybody kind of takes what they want from it because it has the ability to unify in ways that, a lot of other things don't. And so I think it's important that ESPN be, you know, what it's always been through our careers and through our lives. And, uh, but it's not the old ESPN, right? And that's why he's got the chair, so. Uh, so obviously, direct to consumer, we've talked about that. A topic that we have not yet touched on is, is um, sports betting. Uh, and so we've actually, we've been in this space for, for a while now, you know, podcasts, um, infusing the content through Sports Center, Scott Van Pelt at midnight, um, uh, has a regular segment called Bad Beats. Uh, but from, from our perspective, we're, ESPN is not going to be a book. Um, you're not going to go to ESPN to place a bet, but, but our mission is to serve the sports fan, and that, um, from our perspective, is news and information. And so today, actually, we are um, announcing um, our first show uh, our, our first um, regular sports betting show uh, for ESPN News. It's called Daily Wager. Uh, be hosted by Doug Kazirian uh, Monday through Friday for an hour. Um, so we're, and I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, over the next year to two years, Jessica, you're going to see ESPN offering more and more sports betting content to help, again, serve the sports fan, educate the sports fan, um, give, this, give him or her lines, spreads, you know, over-unders, um, expert analysis, um, and um, we're, we're pretty excited about the space. But again, we see it as a natural ex extension of our mission to, to serve the sports fan. Great. For other than launching another league in XFL <laughs> in 2020, I'm um, closer into WWE. And another, another topic that I don't know that we delve into too much is really international. And for uh, WWE, we're currently not only successful here in the U.S. with uh, NBC Universal and the new Fox, Fox Sports, with our TV programming, we're in 180 markets. But one of the things that we're recognizing is that about 30, 35% of our revenue is coming from outside the United States. But when you look at all of our video consumption, whether it's on TV, digital, social, you add that all up, it's actually 70% of our consumption of our product happens outside the United States. So it's a little bit of, there's obviously money to be made. Um, so one of our goals and where we'll be investing beyond kind of OTT and digital, which is still a huge priority for us, is really the global opportunity. And the, the, you know, the question is, well, what does that mean? And for us, it's really about localization. And uh, we have found that we're incredibly popular in India, but we know there are 18 languages in India. So how do we go beyond just doing Hindi, uh, our television program in Hindi? Do we do it in Bengali? Do we do it in other languages? Um, do we actually create and take um, our performers and recruit local talent and create literally a WWE India Performance Center, ultimately creating a touring 
uh, component in India with the goal that you end up finding that talent that's Indian and then they ultimately make it to Raw and SmackDown, our top programming that's seen around the world. So for us, that is the next horizon and, and we believe that the money will follow. Again, smart investment on localizing content and finding talent and making them stars we think will be a game changer on the, in the long run. And so a huge important priority for us. I would say for us, um, I'm fond of saying that AEG began as the Los Angeles Kings as a tenant in the forum and now are a, a dominant global sports enterprise. And I used to say, why not us? And, and you look, you know, five and a half years later from when I came in, we've, we've grown dramatically. And I, I spent a lot more time looking forward than looking back. And we do have kind of aspirations to double the size of this business over the next five or so years. And that's going to take one, a big acquisition or two. Um, and also, like I would say all to all of you entrepreneurs out there who have a business plan, an early stage business, pre-revenue, actually some revenue, um, come see us. Uh, we have an incredible innovation lab where we give you housing, food, transportation, and an incredible managing director and an environment to grow a business. We've had some success there. And we have a venture arm that is looking for really smart people who are going to change the world. And so, uh, so uh, please come see us, uh, send us a note, send us your business plan and, and get in front of us because um, I think that more than anything else will help this business grow. All right, thank you guys for a great panel. Thanks. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.